in our passage. Jesus has to ditch both the crowds and the disciples and hide out. And if you call as to why, it's because the crowds were getting out of hand. Not because Jesus had healed them, but because he had fed them. Now you might think, I'd be more fired up if Jesus cured my uh, blindness than if he fed me dinner. But you'd be missing the significance of that feeding, right? Because it's Passover. It's the time when Israel celebrates their God as a liberator. God takes Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. God feeds them miracle food in the wilderness until the time comes when they can lay claim to the promised land. They, these, these crowds, they'd followed Jesus into the wilderness because they knew him to be a healer. Someone who could fix her problem, their problem, this problem, that problem. You know, that's why they were following him. But by feeding them a miracle meal in the wilderness, by reenacting the Passover story, they determined him to be the king. Someone who could fix all problems. Having received the miracle food, it was in their minds, it was time to enact the next stage of the story. Conquest. Returning to Jerusalem and overthrowing the oppressor. Sticking it to Rome. But Jesus ducks out and hides, foiling their efforts. You know, part of his evasion included crossing a sea on foot. So a move that even the best of trackers uh, would not have anticipated. So when they discover him back in Capernaum, the first question is, what the, how'd you, how, when, uh, how? Jesus offers no explanation for how and when he'd arrived. Instead, Jesus explains why he had ditched them in the first place. You're looking for me, not because you saw signs, because you ate, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This response on Jesus' part, it illustrates a quality of Jesus that I find is overlooked too often. A quality that once you see it, you find evidence of it throughout the Gospels. And frankly, I'm not sure if you can fully appreciate who Jesus is and what Jesus does without an understanding of this quality. I mean, after all, Jesus is loving, powerful, compassionate, unyielding, but he is also annoying. I mean, if I were in that crowd, I'd have a hard time not being like, what? What do you mean we're not looking for you because we saw the signs? I mean, the term that we might use today to describe what Jesus is doing here is, it sounds like he's sort of gaslighting them, right? They didn't ask him to feed them. That was his idea. And it wasn't the meal itself that was so thrilling. It was the story embedded in that meal. Why would Jesus claim that they're just motivated by their bellies? Uh, after graduating from college, I worked at Kent State in campus ministry. One night, my colleague Shelby confronted me about how I had referred to a woman on this panel we had attended. You know, I had found her comments very engaging and compelling and insightful. 
and she was attractive. Honestly, I had all those things in mind when I later referred to her as fine. Which, <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Shelby claimed that that was sexist. I took offense. She knew me. She knew I valued women, respected women. Uh, but she was right. If I sincerely cared about women, I wouldn't demand they go through some mental gymnastics, figuring out what I really meant when I spoke thoughtlessly. And I'd like to think that I realized shortly afterward that she was right and that, I, that I'd been better ever since. I'd like to think that I apologized to Shelby for ruining her evening after she uh, uh, approached me about this. Well, if I never did, if I never apologized, the good news is that on Friday, while I was writing this, I sent her a message through Facebook and I apologized. You know what they say, better a quarter century late than never. <laughs> Shelby was annoying that evening, annoying in the way Jesus is often annoying. And Shelby wasn't an example of this divine quality because she was one of those people who just tells it like it is, or she wasn't somebody who prided herself in being blunt. Sometimes people like that are just annoying full stop. There's nothing Jesus-like about it. But she cared about me, so she confronted me, and it was annoying. And in her text, what we might perceive as annoying, what we might perceive as gaslighting, really isn't. It feels that way because it doesn't confirm our expectations because it pushes us to reevaluate our assumptions and think differently, more deeply. Jesus lays a gift at our feet that we don't see until we've tripped over it and complained about it for a while. Now, I say all this recognizing that there's no indication in the text at this point that the crowds do take offense at Jesus' comments. They may have been tripped up a bit, but they managed to stay on their feet. However, I should add that by the time this chapter ends, Jesus will have so annoyed everyone that he whittles the crowd down to just the disciples. But at this point, at least, they're more than willing to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. The only hint of pushback comes when they say, what sign then will you give that we may see and believe you. What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Which I think there is a subtle pushback here, right? Because, I mean, it's sort of like they're saying, yeah, what could you do uh, to prove it? Mm, let me see if I think of anything. Oh, you know, our ancestors, uh, they ate bread in, in the wilderness. Could you maybe give us a sign like that? Right? I mean, that, yeah, wouldn't we think that was a great sign, everybody? Yeah, yeah. Let, how about something like that? Something like you just did. But Jesus talks as though they still don't get it. His response is very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Again, Kind of annoying. No one suggested that it was Moses who, that gave the bread. Just that it was a sign that Moses 
was indeed the one to liberate God's people when he led them into the wilderness and they received this miraculous bread. But again, they're still being patient. They're not annoyed with Jesus. Again, they want to demonstrate, yes, we have read the signs. Therefore, when Jesus says, the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, they ask Jesus for the bread. I'm it, says Jesus. I'm the bread. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And this is where the lectionary ends our reading. It's a nice place to end it. The people believe that Jesus is the one they should ask for the bread of life, and Jesus responds by saying, here I am. But ending the reading here illustrates the point I've been making, that we overlook how annoying Jesus is, because it ends before Jesus is annoying again. To the people who had just asked him for the bread, Jesus goes on to say, but as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. Why? Why say that? Why, why, not, why not cut the people some slack? Everything they're saying here is an attempt to indicate that they're on board. Why do you keep insisting that they're not? You know, one of the things that's interesting about the Gospel of John is that John concludes by giving us a statement of purpose. John states explicitly what he wants the reader to take away from all that he's written. And given what Jesus is doing here and saying here, that purpose is rather surprising. John says the purpose is this, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The point of the book is to inspire belief in someone who, in these verses at least, insists those determined to believe actually don't. But of course, Jesus isn't working against the purpose of the book. He's clarifying the purpose. He's challenging a superficial understanding of that purpose, what we might call a full belly believing. Because again, note what Jesus says at the outset of this conversation. You are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, it's not within the context of abundance that you reveal what you really believe. It's in the context of scarcity. It's in the context of when there's not, doesn't seem to be enough. That's when you reveal what you believe. I mean, think back to last week's passage. It's when the disciples spot that needy horde coming up the mountain that Jesus issues the test to Philip. It's at that point, it really matters how Philip views the situation. Sure, it's easy to believe now, now that everybody's been fed and there are baskets left over. The real test is what do you see? When it's thousands of growling bellies in a barren wilderness, and Jesus is just some guy with the nerve to ask you how you plan to feed them. That's when belief matters. With their bellies full and their adrenaline pumping, 
The people want to assure Jesus they're fully on board. And they ask, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one God has sent. You know, I grew up in a tradition that made a great deal, uh, uh, put, a, put a great deal of emphasis on the idea that, you know, this, that salvation is by grace, not works, right? Basic, reformed sort of theology. I mean, there is nothing we can do to earn God's love. It is given to us by faith in Christ. We just, we just need, to believe, need to believe. And all that, all that is true. However, we risk making it sound like God just makes it so easy. To borrow the words of our passage, do you believe in the one God has sent? Check yes or no. Mm, yes. Done. So easy. But Jesus isn't being ironic here. He's not telling us that the work of God, you know, that the work of God is just, hey, you just have to believe. No. He's saying it, it is work. And it isn't easy work. And that's not just my opinion. That is the point Jesus seems determined to be getting across uh, to this Jesus fan club he's got in front of him. Look, it's great to see you here with your bellies full and my face on your t-shirt, but don't kid yourself. Believing is work. To fail to see this, to fail to understand the, the work involved in believing simply leaves us vulnerable. You know, when Jesus meets in the upper room for the Passover feast, the disciples are all full of pledges of loyalty. Peter even proclaims himself to be such a true believer that he'd even die for Jesus. And of course, it'll be that very evening that they all will turn tail and flee as Jesus is arrested. And as Jesus predicted, Peter winds up claiming he doesn't even know the man he had claimed he would die for. What does it take for us to believe? To believe in the one whom God has sent? What does it take to avoid confusing a full belly with actual faith? What must Jesus do? Jesus isn't content to make it hard to believe. That would just be annoying. Jesus seems determined to make it almost impossible to give up everything that would give us reason to believe. Not simply to lead us into a wilderness full of hunger, but to lead us to a hill full of death. And the voice we will hear on that hill is not a voice of belief, but a voice mocking the very idea of belief. If you're the son of God, come down off that cross. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Jesus is making it impossible to believe. It is amazing that a book whose purpose is to generate belief in its readers would tell a story in which so many fail to believe. So many examples of people doing precisely the opposite that the book itself wants to elicit from us. But of course, 
it only appears that Jesus is making it impossible to do the work of believing. When all we see is betrayal, injustice, torture, mockery, violence, and ultimately death, Jesus is still doing the work. Believing is hard. It may even feel impossible at times. But there is a God who stands over and above the limits of what we believe is possible. And that God is working in the one whom God sent. From the tomb of the impossible emerges a new possibility. Believing is hard. It takes work. It can be annoying at times to realize how much work. There are times when everything appears to have fallen apart. It's all wilderness. It's all hunger. What do we do? What is the work that God requires of us? Believe in the one whom God sent. In the midst of wilderness, in the midst of hunger, he is your bread. He is the bread, the bread of life. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.